It's one of the great tragedies of the country, I think, that this revolution is playing out, while the great majority of people do not have an adequate understanding of what it is and what's at stake, of the choice is between becoming poorer uh, through the NDO or becoming more prosperous through economic freedom. Hello, my name is Donald, and welcome to the number one media company, Worldview. At Worldview, we explore everyone's perspectives on all things that can broaden our worldview. Today, we're talking with Dr. Anthea Jeffrey. The doctor holds law degrees from WITS, Cambridge, and London universities, and is the head of policy research at the IRR. She has authored 11 books, including People's War, New Light on the Struggle for South Africa, and BEE, Helping or Hurting. She has also written extensively on property rights, land reform, the mining sector, the proposed national health insurance, and the growth-focused alternative to BEE. She is now busy writing a book on the National Democratic Revolution, to which the ANC first committed itself in 1969, and which it has been implementing in many spheres since 1994. Doctor, welcome to the show. Thank you, Donald. I appreciate being here. Mm. And so, so, Doctor, I've just read that the ANC is implementing the National Democratic Revolution. But to our viewers, what is the key goal of this National Democratic Revolution? And why, why should the average South African care about the National Democratic Revolution? Because the key goal of the NDR is to take South Africa by incremental steps from a capitalist economy to a socialist and ultimately a communist one. According to the South African Communist Party, the SACP and COSATU, the ANC's trade union ally, the NDR offers the most direct path to the socialist and communist future. And though the ANC itself generally downplays that socialist objective, preferring to use the language of transformation about its policies. In essence, it does share precisely that goal. And that matters because when you look around the world, we can see that socialist countries have always failed abjectly, whether you're talking about the Soviet Union in 1917 or Venezuela in the 21st century. These socialist countries have always been characterized by failing economies, high levels of inefficiency, disturbing levels of poverty, often hunger, harsh repression. And there is simply no example of where socialism has succeeded. And on the other hand, we know, again, if we look around the world, that there's an alternative way in which economies can be organized with a heavy emphasis on economic freedom in the real sense of the world. Not, not economic freedom as economic freedom fighters pretend it to be, in other words, comprehensive state control on a socialist model, but rather real freedom from excessive state intervention. So the state keeps small, it limits its interventions in the economy, it allows the private sector to meet the needs of consumers on a voluntary exchange basis through the market mechanism. And the countries which embrace that approach have much better economic and other outcomes. And this again has been evident for many years through various indices of economic freedom that are compiled by different organizations. One is drawn up by the Fraser Institute in Canada, uh, which has been doing this since the late 1980s. 
its most recent report came out in September 2021. And uh, it shows that the most free countries, the ones that do best at limiting the power and role of the state, have average GDP per capita of about $50,600. These are uh, a special type of dollar so that it's purchasing power parity. Uh, whereas the least free countries have an equivalent figure of about 5,900. So it's about 10 times higher your average GDP capita in the most free countries compared to the least free ones. And this benefit extends right through to the poorest 10%, because again, the latest figures show that GDP per capita for the poorest 10% in the most free countries is about 14,400. And it's about 1,500 for the, the poorest 10% in the least free countries. That's a massive difference again. And absolute poverty at a rate of, of less you know, income below $1.90 a day uh, is less than 1% in the most free countries, but it's 34% in the most, sorry, I think I got that wrong, less than 1% in the most free countries and 34% in the least free ones. So huge divergence. And obviously, if you want prosperity for all your people, what you need to do is to be embracing economic freedom in the real sense of the term, moving away from the socialist objective of the NDR, embarking on the real structural reforms, which President Cyril Ramaphosa has promised us for some time, but has not in fact implemented. If anything, the NDR is proceeding under his administration um, with no sign of it being rolled back. So this is a choice that South Africa faces. We can keep on pursuing the NDR and the greater poverty and repression that will bring, or we can embrace economic freedom in the true sense of the world. Mm. I believe a country like Singapore's GDP per capita is 100,000 US dollars. So they will probably be like 20 times richer. Um, yes. But um, is, is there like a time frame to the National Democratic Revolution? Or is it as it goes along? It is seen, uh, it was uh, developed by the Soviet Union as a very incremental and gradual strategy. Um, I think for the ANC itself, it sees it as about a 40 year process beginning in 1994. So we're getting closer to the end, but there is of course still many interventions to come. But the NDR has been playing out in many different spheres since 1994. And sadly, most South Africans have very little information about this, because though the information about the NDR is publicly available, the ANC regularly recommits itself to the NDR at its national conferences in documents which are available to all of us. The media and other commentators generally disregard the NDR. And so for the ordinary man and woman in the street, it's just something that they have far too little awareness of. So, Doctor, I've spoken to a person like Rob Davis, the former Minister of Trade and Industry and a member of the South African Communist Party. And I asked him about the NDR and he says the hysteria around it, the quote hysteria around it, is just from right wing circles. It's nothing serious. So how would you respond to that? I would say that's typical of a good communist <laughs> because uh, Rob Davies is, of course, a very senior member of the SACP. He's committed to implementing and advancing the NDR. And naturally he has an interest in delegitimating and stigmatizing using the right-wing slur. Those few organizations that do study the NDR and try to warn South Africans about the dangers in it. But if you just try and look very briefly at the way 
at what has been done under the rubric of the NDR since 1994, one can see that it is indeed quite a scary thing. Uh, the NDR really began um, in primarily in the political sphere because the, the ANC won power in 1994, it was concerned that its hold on power was not sufficiently strong. So its initial focus was to really weaken the checks and balances in the constitution, to weaken parliament, which we've seen in various ways so that it's less able to hold the executive to account, to undermine judicial independence so that NDR interventions are less likely to be struck down by the courts. And to use cadre deployment to send ANC loyalists out into every part of the society so that the ANC can exercise control over what it calls every lever of power. And those levers of power range from the public service, which you would expect, and, and the state-owned enterprises, to the judiciary, the media, the universities, business, civil society organizations, and even the institutions whose independence is guaranteed by the constitution, such as the Public Protector, the Human Rights Commission, and our so-called Independent Electoral Commission, all particularly at senior levels are staffed by cadres who know that their primary job is to advance the NDO. And that has had an enormous impact, of course, uh, on the quality of governance, on the extent to which our democracy is a real democracy. Increasingly, it's very, we have a one-party dominant state in, in, in which that party is very dominant indeed. And at the same time, the NDR has been proceeding in socioeconomic spheres as well, initially more slowly since 2012, more rapidly, because 2012 marked the start of the second phase of the NDR, which is supposed to be characterized by more radical steps. So we have had, for example, uh, labor laws, which have increased the costs and hassle factor of employment and are a major reason why we now has, have such a crisis of unemployment in the country, with almost 75% of people between the ages of 16 and 24 unable to find work. Uh, it's also very much used uh, the race divisions in the country, which it's exacerbated through employment equity and BEE rules on the basis that this will provide redress for past uh, wrongs. But what it has in fact done is to cripple the efficiency of the public service, to undermine that of the private sector, uh, and to push up many of the costs of, of, the, of providing public goods and services, because state tenders in particular have become tainted by corruption and inflated prices, as we can talk about in due course. And what they've also done, and this has been critical to the NDR right from the start, is to undermine property rights. And this has been done on an incremental basis. And the IRR can talk to 30, 40 policies which have been introduced since 1994, all of which erode property rights, particularly in the land reform sphere, but increasingly affecting other assets too. And the culmination of that, of course, is, is the, the current emphasis on expropriation without compensation, which again, perhaps we can talk about a bit more in due course. So if you just step back and look at this from the political sphere to the socioeconomic sphere, the NDR is unfolding in very many different areas. And its overall effect has been to cripple the capacity of our economy to grow, 
we can't attract the investment that we ought to have. We have much higher unemployment than other emerging markets. And that has all sorts of spillover effects in terms of undermining stability, encouraging the kind of unrest that we saw in July this year, and so on. So the NDR is serious. Apart from its ultimate socialist goal, what it's doing right now is very scary for the country. Hmm. And can one interpret the recent local election result as a rejection somewhat of the NDR? Yes, indeed. I, I think that um, because cadre deployment, employment equity, black economic empowerment, tenderpreneurship have all had the effect of undermining the delivery of goods and services, I think there are many communities in the country that are very uh, tired, impatient, angry with the ANC over the, the collapse of services, whether it's electricity, whether it's sanitation, um, or whether it's, it's just the capacity to fix the potholes, people are very concerned about the ANC's inability to deliver. The evidence of corruption through the Sondo Commission, and of course, you know, when you're a small elite has complete control of the levers of power, then you, there's an impetus to corruption uh, and not enough uh, capacity to curb it. And people are angry about that too. So there hasn't undoubtedly been a turning away from the ANC in this latest election. Unfortunately, uh, not enough to put the ANC out of power in many municipalities. Partly, I think, because people are, are warned that social grants are linked to the ANC and they will end if people vote for other parties. Uh, also, perhaps because other parties haven't done enough to capture the imagination of the millions of voters who've been staying away from the polls in increasing number for many years now. Hmm. And, um, okay, so the, the National Democratic Revolution has its roots in communism. How much influence does the South African Communist Party have over the tripartite alliance or specifically the ANC? It has an enormous influence. Partly that's historical. And if you, if you look back at the figures when the ANC held its conference um, in Tanzania, Morogoro in 1969, um, at that point, there was only one member of its National Executive Committee that was not a member of the Communist Party. At the Carberry Conference in 1985, you got a similar result, a few more communists, but undoubtedly communist domination. And what we've seen for a long time is that the communists put forward a policy proposal and then the ANC embraces it. Whether we look historically, things like Let's adopt the NDR, first done by the SACP in 1962, and then echoed by the ANC in 1969. Let's embark on a people's war to help the ANC get rid of its black rivals inside the country. First really decided by an SACP delegation to Vietnam in 1978, and endorsed by the ANC in 1979. Or more recently, we look at 2017. In July 2017, the SACP held a Congress where they adopted many resolutions as to the policy steps that were needed. And in December 2017, the ANC held a national conference where many of those same ideas came forward and were endorsed by the ANC. So it's that relationship which is so important. Effectively, the SACP is the jockey riding the ANC horse into power without having itself to win any seats. Uh, but it really sets the tone. So a whole number of the policies that we see now, whether it's the big thrust um, emphasis on expropriation, whether it's the idea of state custodianship, 
whether it's the idea of localization to drive industrialization, whether it's the national health insurance proposal, um, whether it's the, the pending idea that we should have a, a similar national social security fund where the state would take control of private pensions, um, and very much the idea of prescribed assets uh, that the government should be able to direct the enormous savings which ought to be found in private sector institutions and push those into state-run infrastructure projects and other needs of the revolution. All of this comes out of the thinking of the SACP and is now being carried forward by the ANC. Why is there such a thing as a tripartite alliance? Why hasn't the two parties or the three parties melded into one? I think because that would make it more obvious what is happening. The ANC, particularly, you know, in the apartheid period, um, when there was global outrage, naturally, at what was uh, the, the racist policies of the National Party government, had a great deal of international support. Much of that support came from the Soviet Union and other communist countries, but much of it came also from Scandinavian countries, from European countries, from the, from the US and so on. And if the ANC had overtly been uh, the junior partner of the SACP, that wider support would have been very difficult to garner. And even now, if the ANC were clearly to merge with the SACP and clearly to espouse the socialist communist goal, that would make it more difficult for it to maintain its legitimacy in the wider world and also within the country because you know, the Institute has been conducting opinion polling now for a number of years. And it's very clear that the great majority of South Africans don't share the radical objectives of the ANC-SACP alliance. Uh, you ask them if they'd rather have a political party that promises expropri excuse me, expropriation without compensation on a big way, or whether they would support a political party that promises growth and jobs. 80% say it's the growth and jobs option that they'd prefer. Um, and so the, S the NC is actually also out of step with its electorate. It's important, too, that it, it should not be too frank with its electorate. And maintaining the fiction of these separate organizations enables it to do so. That's interesting. Um, so, Doctor, you, you mentioned earlier expropriation without compensation. Many viewers are baffled why the ANC is so determined to get this. I've spoken to Dr. Peter Hammond. He has said that one of the main reasons for expropriation without compensation, why this is being driven, is because of Chinese influence. He says the Chinese wants to seize assets in the event that the ANC is unable to pay its debts or the government of South Africa is unable to pay its debts. It's what happened in Zimbabwe, according to him. Is, is there any uh, truth to that? I think the situation is a bit different here at the moment, at least, in, in that I don't think we have that much debt to China because China has been rather wary of lending directly to us. We have a debt to the BRICS Bank. But I, I also think that... Um, Increasing Chinese-Russian domination, increasing Western weakness mean that the global balance of forces is such that the NC now feels more encouraged to advance expropriation without compensation and generally step up the pace of the NDR, uh, which would have been more difficult to do. But, you know, immediately after the collapse of the Soviet Union, it would have been very difficult to do that. 
Um, now we tended to forget the, the failures of communism and the global environment is more suitable and the domestic environment is more suitable too, because after so many years of NDR implementation, we have the negative consequences I talked about before. Low growth, limited investment, very high unemployment, and people are becoming desperate enough to believe that if only they could get some land for free, perhaps that would help them. Whereas in general, and still, there's no major interest in land reform among the great majority of Black South Africans. Some Black people, of course, do very much want to become commercial farmers, but the great majority of Black South Africans want to move into the cities and have jobs and earn their own salaries and, and acquire their own houses. Um, so why is the ANC pushing it? Well, it's really been pushing it all the way back to the 1930s, when Moscow identified land reform as an important weakness because of skewed land ownership. It was a wedge issue that could be used uh, to weaken property rights in one sphere and then to exp expand that, that weakening of property rights into other spheres as well. We saw it in 1955 with the Freedom Charter drawn up very much by the SACP, by some of its most prominent members, and then endorsed by the ANC talks about redividing the land among those who work it. In the 1980s, there was a, a not very well publicized plan on the part of the ANC uh, to really vest the land in, in the hands of peasant farmers, and then to collectivize those farmers in the second phase, when, you know, as the NDR moved into its, its socialist sphere. Um, so it's been there for a long time. And again, more recently, if you look at what's been said by the ANC since 1994, First clear statement in 2002 at the Stellenbosch National Conference, we have to eliminate existing property relations in order to advance the NDR. In 2007, we have to get rid of the willing buyer, willing seller principle in land reform and have a new expropriation act. In 2012, uh, we have to embark on this new and more radical phase of the NDR uh, and, more, and do more to confront capitalism. In 2017, we must make sure that expropriation without compensation is available to us as a tool for land reform. But of course, once you have expropriation with compensation available through the constitution, then the reach of it can expand beyond land into other kinds of property as well. And already we're beginning to see that kind of expansion because the, the EWC constitutional amendment bill put forward by an ad hoc committee uh, talks about not only land, but also the improvements on it that should be subject to expropriation for nil compensation. And those improvements could range from people's houses to shopping centers, factories, mine shafts, and so on. So the improvements is already a big expansion away from land alone. Um, and it's possible that in time we'll see intellectual property shares any number of assets being subjected to uh, nil compensation. If I can play devil's advocate, I recently, or I just read a book, The ANC's Last Decade by Dr. Ralph Mateka. I might be mispronouncing that, but he says that the ANC is overwhelmed with the idea of democratic centralism. I believe that's the phrase he coined. And so you would argue perhaps that it's really people like Mbeki, Ramaphosa or Zuma that decides what happens within the ANC. It's not the ordinary branches, like you mentioned, like um, the decision made in 2007. So is, is that a valid criticism? That it's only people at the top that really decide what happens at the national level? 
I think that's absolutely right. And the democratic centralism idea is, is a well-established Leninist concept uh, that, of course, you can have some interaction from the top with your party members while you're discussing a policy proposal. But once the decision is made, then it is binding on all members of the party and they are obliged to implement it. And uh, very much we have a, a small group at the top, the Politburo of the SACP in particular, the National Executive Committee of the ANC, and in particular its National Working Committee, which are the drivers of the NDR. And I think that very many of ordinary rank and file ANC members would have very little insight into what these, uh, this, this relative elite, this small group is deciding that they, the members of the ANC want. And again, at the times opinion polling brings out that contrast very clearly. Um, R.W. Johnson, I think who's a well-known author on South Africa, conducted some opinion polls for ENCA uh, in 2017 before Ramaphosa became the ANC president when the choice was between Zuma and Ramaphosa. And he asked people, well, you know, don't you want the expropriation without compensation, the radical redistribution that Zuma will bring? Or do you want the sort of policies, business-friendly policies that we think Ramaphosa might usher in? And a, a big majority in favor of the business-friendly policies associated with Ramaphosa. And yet when those 400 delegates assembled at NASREC in December 2017, the resolutions they adopted nationalized the Reserve Bank make EWC available as an option, examine the introduction of prescribed assets so that we can funnel pension funds into the state's preferred projects. All of that was decided by this narrow group of people um, without reference to even what ANC members think, let alone the broader population. Okay, so um, Doctor, back to EWC. What has the ANC done in recent years to achieve expropriation without compensation? Yeah, well, it's building on that NASRAC resolution in 2017. They got a standing committee of parliament, the Constitutional Review Committee, to kick off the process, a very unusual thing to do, because normally if you want a constitutional amendment, what you do is you bring out a bill, everybody can see what the wording of the bill is. You invite public submissions and people can comment both on whether there should be a constitutional change and what the content of that change should be. Instead, the Constitutional Review Committee held hearings all around the country on the broad question, should we amend the constitution to allow expropriation without compensation? And they got 450,000 or so written submissions, most of which said, no, don't. It will be a very dangerous thing to do. It will have all sorts of adverse economic consequences. It will not help the poorest of the poor. Uh, it won't provide redress. It will just turn land into a patronage tool to be wielded by the ANC. But there were also public hearings in the provinces where people came forward to give oral testimony. There's some evidence that people were trained in what to say beforehand, some evidence that they were given particular direction by EFF and ANC uh, cadres before the hearings began. And then they came up and they said that they would like to have expropriation without compensation. They would like to have the land. This would make all the difference to the poverty which they experience. Um, again, contrary to all the facts, because we've had land reform for many years now, and about 90% perhaps of land reform projects have failed, which means their beneficiaries are no better off than they were before. But the orchestrated upsurge of, yes, let's have EWC, 
was achieved by the Constitutional Review Committee. And then ignoring all the written warnings, it went with those uh, written submit those oral submissions and recommended that the constitution be changed. Then we had a convoluted process with the ad hoc committee subsequently established by parliament, which took us through a couple of drafts of what this bill might say. And the initial changes were not that, they were certainly very worrying, but uh, not as extensive as they are now, because the second draft introduced um, only in July this year, suddenly allows the state to take custodianship of certain land, certain land being left entirely undefined. And it also allows uh, parliament to decide from time to time by 51% majority when no compensation should apply. So it's aimed to give parliament a completely blank check on the circumstances in which expropriation without compensation will apply. It will need to be linked to land, but land and the improvements already take you far towards many different type asset types. Um, then in addition to that, because you need uh, not only the constitutional change, you need a law of general application, which can provide the nuts and bolts of how expropriation is going to be carried out. So we also have the expropriation bill, which first in fact came uh, to public attention in 2008, after the Polokwane decision in 2007, that there should be a new expropriation bill, uh, which would uh, move away from willing buyer, willing seller. Um, and that version was clearly unconstitutional. The 2013 version was clearly unconstitutional. The 2015 version was adopted by parliament, even though in the view of the IRR and many others, it was also unconstitutional. Uh, and in the end, uh, President Zuma declined to sign it into law. He said there'd been too many procedural shortcomings. So it, it didn't proceed into law. And that gave, unfortunately, the ANC the opportunity to add in no compensation provisions. So the latest version of the expropriation bill and bill unveiled in 2020 has a very vague clause, which says the compensation can be nil in five listed instances, which are themselves very broad. Uh, for example, where you, you no longer control your property, perhaps because a building has been hijacked in the CBD, whatever. Uh, but it's also not a closed list, quite expressly not a closed list. So we have no idea how many other circumstances might in future also arise where no compensation will be paid. And it's a, a large range of state entities, all the municipalities, many other state entities that will have powers under the expropriation bill to expropriate not just land because property is defined as not being limited to land for no compensation. Um, so it's, it's opening the door a little bit wider and it's, it's the first of the laws of general application, which we can expect will be used to implement uh, and, and give flesh to the constitutional provision allowing EWC. What's going to happen to these bills? The EWC constitutional amendment bill is in a bit of trouble at the moment. Maybe that's what we're being led to believe. The EFF wants custodianship of all land. The NC says custodianship of certain land presumably to reassure uh, black homeowners up and down the country that it's not their land that's going to be taken, traditional leaders up and down the country that it's not their land that's going to shift into state custodianship. Um, but uh, the EFF said they won't support the ANC's version. And without the EFF support, they can't get the two-thirds majority, which is the least of what they need to adopt the constitutional amendment. I think the conflict between the two is, is really one of semantics.
and we, we have really no idea of whether a deal will be done between the ANC and the EFF to push that, that constitutional amendment bill through Parliament, if not this year, because Parliament is running out of time, then next year. And it's a similar story with the expropriation bill that only needs a 51% majority. It's back in Parliament right now um, for some sort of consideration by the Portfolio Committee, but you'll have the detailed deliberations next year. Do you think there will be a renewed urgency between the EFF and the ANC to find a compromise on a constitutional amendment with the recent local election results? Because it doesn't seem that they will have a two-thirds majority in 2024. So do you think they will try to hash out something at last now? I think that will unfortunately provide a big impetus to them to settle their differences and move ahead with the bill that they already have. Uh, that if they were to restart the process, it would take much longer. They might just go beyond the 2024 time period, which is significant because if the two of them fail to get the two thirds majority, then they really would find it difficult to change the constitution in that way in due course. So yes, there's, there's much reason, unfortunately, for the ANC and the EFF, which is simply an offshoot from the ANC. From the ANC, it's, it's the ANC Youth League in a different guise for them to find common cause and, and, and you know, recognize how much progress they've already made towards a key NDR goal and cement it by passing that constitutional amendment. Whether it will then stick remains another thing because there's a strong argument to be made that you need a 75% majority, which they cannot marshal. There are various other procedural arguments that can be raised against the validity of that bill. And no doubt all those points will be made in due course before the courts. Interesting. Um, doctors, if we can pivot to another controversial subject in South Africa, BEE, it seems like most South Africans agree that it's not really working. It's not really benefiting the majority of black people as it's intended to do. Can you give us some data stories to back that up of how BEE is not really helping South Africa or black people in particular? Yes, and there's not a lot of data, I'm afraid, but we can certainly point to some. So, for example, from the IRR's own opinion polls, uh, there were a number of years in which we asked people whether they personally benefited from BEE in its most common forms, which is either an ownership deal or a preferential tender. And um, 15, not even quite as much as 15% of black respondents said, yes, they had personally benefited. But 85% said, no, they have not derived any benefit at all. And we also know if, if we look at the distribution of national income figures drawn up by Statistics South Africa, uh, recently um, there was a report indicating that the top 10% of, of black South Africans had seen their share of national income rise from 19% to 2000, in 2006 to 26% in 2015. So it's, it's quite a movement um, and a similar sort of movement for the next 50% uh, of, of Black South Africans. But among the poorest 40% of Black South Africans, their share of national income had been 3.4% in 2006. It was still a paltry 3.7% in 2015. So through all those years of BEE implementation of the rules being tightened up, more strictly enforced, the 40% of Black South Africans saw no increase in their share of national income. And we also, of course, have um, stories from the ANC itself saying it only helps the elite. So Pravin Gordon, when he was fin finance minister, 
in 2009 in the first Zuma administration said BEE hasn't worked. It's helped only a small number, small proportion, and that isn't good enough. Um, we've had the National Planning Commission looking at BEE and saying it only helps a small group. We had Matthews Pauser saying it only helps a small elite and so on. So we've even had the SACP, which is worried now about the extent to which BEE leads to tenderpreneurship, leads to corruption, saying BEE is really the key reason why our Gini coefficient of inequality is going up. And just to unpack that a bit, um, it's, it's gone up significantly since 1994. And why is that? Because the small group of BEE beneficiaries at the top have benefited enormously from public service jobs, well-paid, from uh, ownership deals, trillion rand has gone towards ownership deals, according to William Gamedi, and from the tenders, which we can talk about a bit more, which have certainly enriched a number of people. And at the same time, we now have 10 million Black South Africans who are unemployed and therefore destitute. So the gap between the small number of, of rich people and the vast number of destitute people is enormous. And that's the reason why we have such high inequality and why that intra-Black inequality overshadows everything else. The Black population makes up 80% of, of the South Africa's population. If inequality is widening there, then the Gini coefficient is undoubtedly going to get worse rather than better. So the, the SACP didn't say that we should get rid of BEE, but it is an indication of how it is widening intra-Black inequality rather than helping the entire Black population, which is what we need redress measures to do. Yeah, it seems like it's only really benefiting people like Patrice Motsepe or Ramaphosa, or did benefit them. But um, so I, I've read an article that you've written about BE, and it's very interesting you mentioned that BE actually makes items and services more expensive. Can you explain to our viewers why is that the case? Yes, indeed. Perhaps one should start with, with the words of an, an unnamed BEE entrepreneur who said this to the Star newspaper in 2012. Well, of course, they're inflated prices, he said, in essence, because you have to pay to the political principles in order to be considered for a tender. You have to pay for the actual tender when it comes up. You have to be paid to be paid when you've done the work and you have to grease the machinery. In other words, you have to keep making contributions to the ANC, the SACP, the ANC Women's League, the ANC Youth League, etc. And all that has to come out of the contract price. So naturally you put it up so that you're going to be able to afford all of that. How much do they put up the contract prices? Well, Pravin Gordon, again, when he was finance minister in, in 2009, lamented the fact that the public service was paying far more than the private sector would. 40 million rand for a school that should cost 15 million rand, he said. And then Gwede Mantasha in 2012, when he was ANC Secretary General, said, what is this thing of paying 27 rand for a bottle of water that you can buy for seven rand because you want to have a middle-class person with a business? And he indicated it was absolutely crazy. And he appealed to, to black businessmen to stop using the state as their cash cow by providing deficient uh, goods at, at inflated prices. But look a little bit deeper and you get interesting insights from the National Treasury. So in October 2016, just before he retired, 
the chief procurement officer, Kenneth Brown, said that fraud and inflated pricing was now tainting between 30 and 40% of state procurement. And that is a lot of money. At that point, the state's procurement budget was 600 billion. Um, more recently, it's risen to 800 billion. It's no doubt higher still now. And then we got a similar message from um, Willie Matabule, who became Kenneth Brown's acting replacement as chief procurement officer. When the Zondo Commission began its, its hearings in 2018, its first witness was Mr. Matabule. And he said about 50% of the contracts just deliberately don't apply the rules. And the moment the rules are not being applied, say because you've got an emergency situation, then you'll find in his words, a contract that begins at 4 million Rand is still sitting at 200 million Rand. And he says this has an enormous impact on all South Africans because the state is a principal provider of goods and services to so many millions of people. And it's a tragedy because the real benefits, the fraudulently often acquired benefits are going to a very narrow group. And the great majority of South Africans finds that there's less left over to provide the goods and services they so badly need. Yeah, so we now we know that there's a problem with BE or it's not working. What are some sensitive alternatives to BE? Well, the IRR has for many years been arguing for an alternative system, which we call economic empowerment for the disadvantaged. And that would have three key elements. First of all, we would reward business for doing the things that business does, ought to do, for investing in the country, for employing people, particularly for expanding employment, for helping to bring in capital investment, um, for innovating, for contributing to tax revenues, for contributing to exports, for all of these fundamentally vital business contributions, business would earn voluntary EED points on a completely new scorecard. Secondly, would say we have to have something that reaches down to the grassroots that doesn't just help the elite. So we think that if you look at, at three areas of particular failure in state provision, education, healthcare, and housing, we would do much better by taking the bulk of the money that's being so badly spent by bureaucrats in those three spheres and amounts to well over 700 billion at the moment and redividing it up and redirecting it to low income households in the form of vouchers, which are exchangeable only for schooling or for housing or for healthcare. So they can't easily be abused. And then it would mean if we, if we uh, take uh, the, the schooling option, for example, which we can talk about a bit more if you would like in time, that means that parents finally have a real choice. What school do they want their children to go to? That's a choice that the middle class has now. But this would mean that low income households could also have that choice. And the schools would know that the families have a choice. And so they would have to start competing for the custom of those families which means they'd have to hold their fees as low as possible. They'd have to improve their efficiency as much as possible. They'll have to make sure that schools are well run, that discipline is maintained, that teachers are in class on time teaching so that they can compete. And you would have many more independent schools springing up to meet this new demand. We do have some already like the Spark schools, Curra schools, some of which are already moving into townships. 
we would find many more independent schools being established in informal settlements, in township areas where people with vouchers live in the rural areas, et cetera. And with the schools with all these incentives to improve their performance would undoubtedly become much better and quite quickly. So we think the vouchers are a very important part of, of a different empowerment system. And you'd get a similar outcome with housing where people would be able to start meeting their own housing needs, whether it's upgrading a shack or buying a house or renovating something that they already have. And in the healthcare sphere, where instead of having to rely on the dreadful public clinics and, and hospitals, which so often don't have medicines, aren't clean enough, don't have caring staff, they could take out low cost uh, medical scheme membership and go to the private sector for their primary health needs. And again, there'd be a new emphasis on efficiency and keeping costs down in order to attract the custom of those millions of people. So we think that's the second key element of our EED idea. And then the third one is that we want to get away from race. So long as we have BEE, we have to keep dividing the population into blacks, coloreds, Indians, and whites, using informally the very same apartheid era classifications that were condemned around the world and across the country before 1994, which were in fact repealed by the National Party government in 1991, 30 years ago. But because we have BEE, we still use those apartheid era classifications in some informal classification system that nobody quite knows how it works, but it's there. Um, we should dispense with that. We don't want to keep on dividing people up by race. And if we look at socioeconomic status, if we say who is disadvantaged, who most needs the help, then we apply a means test as we already do with the social grants and people who have low income would qualify for help. And the sons and daughters of the political elite would not, which would also be a fair income, a fairer outcome. And people might worry that whites would then also qualify and a very small proportion of whites would because they're about 1% uh, or so of the people living in poverty are white. So they could also get a benefit. But the great majority of all the benefits would go to people who we currently think of as black. And at the same time, by dropping race classification, reducing racial polarization and this sense of zero sum competition, um, we, we could move to a point of much greater um, social cohesion in the real sense of the world. Yeah, uh, Doctor, that, those sound like great alternatives. So the question is, why haven't they been implemented? I mean, is there something personal to do with Ramaphosa or Motsepe that has benefited from P BEE that they are reluctant to let it go? I, I think there was a case in Parliament where either Musi Maimane or John Stienhuisen laid out an argument against BEE and Ramaphosa, when he took the stand again, he said, we don't need to end it. We need to have more of it. So why haven't we uh, pursued some of your alternatives or the um, IRR's alternatives to BEE? There are massive entrenched interests against that shift, unfortunately. And it's driven, I think, by a mixture of personal self-interest and by the NDR ideology. So if we look at the personal self-interest, I think the example of Ace Magashule's son just sums it up. In the middle of the COVID pandemic last year, when we had you know, contracts being put out for personal protective equipment and other needs to counter the COVID pandemic, 
on an emergency basis, which is what he might have warned as a sort of situation where normal procurement rules get abandoned. Um, S. Magashule's son was able to secure a contract worth, I don't know how much, for his, his company of which he is the sole director. And the very next week he went out and bought a 2 million rand BMW. So, and as Ramaphosa has warned, you know, he, Ramaphosa, when he was saying the ANC is accused number one when it comes to corruption, did also recognize that the children of the, of the ANC leaders in the party and in government are often told about tender opportunities before anybody else knows about them. So they're able to get them. And, and this, of course, keeps the wealth in the family. Um, and it makes it, I, I expect, very difficult to have sufficient, uh, to, to put the public interest before self-interest. Um, and then the other major factor is the ideology, because BEE and employment equity vastly increase state power to begin with. They increase state power over business. They keep limiting business autonomy more and more. They big business always on the back foot and very wary to oppose the state. Even when policies like EWC come up, overtly they don't criticize it because they know they're likely to be vulnerable on their employment equity and BEE scores because you simply cannot comply with the racial targets which are being imposed, which are really quite unrealistic. Um, and apart from that, um, you also have unfortunately through these policies, a great deterrent to investment so South Africa just doesn't attract the, the FDI that it should, therefore much lower growth, therefore much higher unemployment, and therefore from the NDR perspective, much greater revolutionary potential in the country as more and more people become poor and desperate. And that revolutionary potential is needed to drive the NDR forward to its final socialist end. So they have an ideological interest in maintaining what helps the rich and impoverishes the poor. It's very yeah. sad. It's Yeah, it seems like we have a big problem on our hands. But doctor, I, I see our time is running out. One last question I want to ask you is about education vouchers. A lot of people are frustrated with the education system. Can you tell us how an education voucher will help us solve many of those problems? Yes, indeed. You know, we, we, we do have a, a growth of private schools, independent schools in this country part of a global trend where across the world in countries like India and Kenya and Nairobi, millions of children are attending low cost private schools. They're avoiding the free public schools because those free public schools offer such a poor quality of education and going to the low cost private schools which offer a much better education. But obviously you, many more people could afford that option if they had the benefit of a tax funded voucher. If as a low income household, you were able to obtain a tax funded voucher, which you could exchange for schooling for your children at an approved school, then obviously, as I said before, you have the choices now available to the middle class and the schools have to compete for your custom. The public schools have to get much better. Doesn't mean to say that we'll have no public schools left, but if they're going to attract the custom of those parents, they have to really up their game. The independent schools will increase. There may be schools started by faith-based organizations or civil society organizations. There'll be a whole plethora of choice. And that choice will be very good for South Africa. It depends partly on money. And the money can be obtained not by increasing spending, which we can't afford to do, but by redirecting our existing spending. 
At the moment, we have billions of rands being badly spent by bureaucrats. We should redirect those billions of rands into education vouchers for low-income households, where parents have an enormous personal interest ensuring that the money is used to the best possible effect. Just quickly, um, it just came to, to my mind, is there an equivalent of an NDR in a country like India, a national democratic revolution? Um, yes, there would have been. I haven't studied it enough, but certainly when the Congress um, Party came to power in India in 1948, they were very much influenced by communist Marxist thinking. So for many years, you had a vast degree of state control over the economy, became known as the Raj, uh, the, the license Raj. You had to get a license for every economic activity. And it's only really, what, in the last 10, 20 years that, that India has fundamentally started to reform and seen enormous growth as a result. So, yes, it was the Soviet Union's idea that the NDR should play out in every Asian and American, not Asian and African former colony. Most of them would come to independence with a largely capitalist system. If you could get them to abandon that capitalist system, embrace socialism, they would move into the Soviet sphere of influence. And they set out the sort of steps that should be taken to move countries from the one path to the other. Well, that's fascinating. And it seems like if in India, it can be largely overcome, perhaps it can be in South Africa as well. But doctors, thank you so much for your time. This has been such a wise analysis. I want to give you one last opportunity to add plug or say anything that you want to. I wish that many, many more people were aware of the NDR. It's one of the great tragedies of the country, I think, that this revolution is playing out, while the great majority of people do not have an adequate understanding of what it is and what's at stake, of the choice is between becoming poorer uh, through the NDR or becoming more prosperous through economic freedom. And I wish that, I wish the commentariat would do a better job of informing South Africans that that choice is available and then embracing the choice that they make, which I'm willing to bet would not be the India. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Doctor. Thank you so much for your time. To our viewers, if you've made it this far, you most certainly enjoy this content. So please consider liking this video, sharing it as widely as possible, and subscribing to our channel. My name is Donald, and you've been watching Worldview.